Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Uh, we are continuing our study, the Daniel Project, this morning uh, as we continue to learn uh, from Daniel's life what it means to live as exiles, uh, people who are very far from home but always close to God. And in Daniel chapter 6, where we are today, we come to one of the well, most well-known stories, one of the best love stories um, in all of the Bible. And it is a story about God's faithfulness to his children. The uh, title of our message today is Living in the Lion's Den Without Being Eaten. Now, because Daniel faithfully followed God in Babylon, he finds himself in the lion's den. And it reminds us that when you live faithfully for God in a place that rejects your beliefs and in a place that may increasingly despise your belief and even eventually may see those beliefs as dangerous, you might find yourself one day in a lion's den. There's a new movie that's out. Maybe some of you have seen it. I haven't gotten to yet. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. But I kind of looked up the story because I heard it was a true story. And it's the story of a man named Desmond Doss, who was a Christ follower who had convictions about killing. But he also had convictions about serving his country and about World War II. And so he enlisted in the army and his convictions about not killing and his conviction about being in the army collided. And he ended up in the lion's den and the lion's den was called Hacksaw Ridge. Everyone who lives faithfully and wisely in Babylon will find ourselves colliding with our culture at times. Now today what I want to help you to see is that, see how you can stand for God, how you can stand strong for him, even in the face of fierce opposition, how, how you can live well in Babylon, live faithfully in a culture that is increasingly dark spiritually. That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get to that, I want to take a few moments for us to talk about Tuesday. We've had an election and it's dominating the national news, of course. It's dominating many of our thoughts. And the question arises, well, what are Christ's followers to do about the election of Donald Trump? Now, some of us are glad he won. Some of us are sad that he won. Some of us wanted Hillary Clinton to win. Others of us didn't vote for either candidate. The reality is there are a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings floating around this room, floating around our communities, floating around our country. And I've addressed uh, some things a couple of times in recent weeks relating to this season in our nation's life, but I think it would be good for us in the wake of the election to remind ourselves of some truths once more, all of us, whoever we voted for. And the first thing I want to remind us is this. We have a new president, but we have the same king. God is still in control, and that is the reality that should govern our minds and our hearts, not how much we despise or how much we delight in the results of the election. I'm going to ask you now what I've asked you before. Do you believe today, like you did before Tuesday, whatever your feelings about Tuesday, do you believe that God is in control? Yes. And you may be grieved over what happened. You may uh, be happy over what happened. But if you're grieved and you believe God is in control, that means you should not be frantic or full of anxiety. If you're happy, it means you should not gloat, but you should trust and live with humility. Because either way, the same king is still sitting on the same throne of the universe like he always has, like he always will. 
Second, we have a new president, but we have the same enemy. And our enemy's name is Satan. Our enemies are not the people on the other side of the aisle from us politically or in our convictions. Our enemy is Satan, and he is still prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to stay alert to his schemes. We need to make sure as Christ followers, we do not get derailed or sidetracked. Third, we have a new president, but we have the same neighbors. So about half the country voted for Hillary Clinton. About half the country voted for Donald Trump. That means at least half the country is unhappy. That means no matter what, some people are disappointed today. Some people are happy today. That means, depending on your perspective, we should not despise and judge those who are disappointed. That means we should not despise and judge those who are happy. It means that wherever we land on this election, we should remember, first and foremost, Jesus' command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as Christ followers living in this region, we should never forget that at least 80%, maybe 90% of the people in our communities do not know Jesus Christ. And that matters a whole lot more than anything else. Fourth, we have a new president, but we have the same calling. And that calling is the Great Commission. We can celebrate political wins or grieve political losses, but we need to remember that Jesus did not leave us here on this planet to gain political power. Jesus left us here commissioning us to tell the world about him. And it would be a tragedy for people of either side of our divide to win the White House and lose the souls of those God has given into our care. And part of what needs to happen during a time like this season is we as Christ followers should examine the place of our deepest passions. We need to consider what it is that thrills us and what it is that grieves us. And we need to recenter and remember that we live in a dark world that's lost and above all else that needs to know Jesus Christ. Finally, we need to remember that we have a new president, but we have the same home. Now, if you've been around here for very long, if you know me at all, you know as your pastor that I love this country, that I'm proud to be an American, but it needs to be said, we need to remind ourselves this is not our home. God has blessed America, and we can rejoice in that, but America is not our future. We are exiles in a foreign land. We are literally passing through. The New Testament tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ, and our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. And so while we look to heaven and we wait for our coming king, our prime responsibility is to serve God faithfully. It's kind of interesting that during the same period of history that we've been studying in the book of Daniel, the prophet Jeremiah was also writing in a very famous passage in his prophecy, Jeremiah 29, he talks about how we as God's people, as exiles, have a responsibility always to seek the welfare of our city, of our nation, the welfare of the peoples of this world. This is what God said to his exiled people in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, 7. He said, seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. America is not our home, but God has placed us here to love our neighbors to love him so that the peoples of this world may know the goodness of our God. 
And the question really for us today is, can we do that and do it faithfully, whether or not we are glad or sad at what happened on Tuesday? So I just want to say to each of us, let's obey God in this season. Let's obey God, first of all, by praying for our leaders. And let me just add to that, if, if you feel like you cannot pray for our president-elect, that's a sin, because God commands us to pray for our leaders. And on the other side of things, if you feel like you haven't been able to pray for President Obama these last eight years, that's a sin. Doesn't matter who our leaders are, God commands us to pray for them. We need to obey him. God commands us to love our neighbors that are around us, no matter who they voted for. God commands us to joyfully trust in his loving providence, whether or not God did what we thought he should do. Let's just be reminded, there is a God in heaven, and he's not you. He's God, we're not, and that's a good thing. Say, that's a really good thing. But with those things in mind, let's take a moment to pray. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and just offer your prayers to the Father? God, we want to say as your people that we trust you, even if we don't understand what you're doing. And Lord, we want to say to you today as your people that we are going to obey you by praying for our leaders. And so now, even now, Lord, we pray for President Obama. We ask that in these last few weeks of his time in office that you would give him power and strength and wisdom to do your will as our president and that he would, he would lead in these last few weeks with wisdom and grace and truth. Lord, we pray for President-elect Trump and we pray as well, Lord, that you would lead him, that he would, he would follow your, your plans and your ways, that he would lead with wisdom and lead with grace, and that he would do the things that would lead to justice and goodness in the life of our nation. Lord, we may be here today with different feelings about what has happened. Lord, if we rejoice, let us rejoice with humility. And Lord, if we grieve, let us grieve with hope. And Lord, we know we can do these things because you are God, you are in control, and you are good, and we can trust you. We pray these things all now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Well, I want to share with you from Daniel 6, five ways to stand strong for God. Five ways when we're living in the lion's den that we can live without getting eaten. And we're going to do this a little differently today. In the first half of this message, I'm going to walk through the entire chapter, all 28 verses, and, and briefly explain the story to you. And then after that, we're going to go to the application, and we're going to look at these five things and see how we can apply what happened to Daniel to our lives. So let's start in verse 1, Daniel 6, verses 1 through 3 says this, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, that's the administrators, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, just remember where we are. Last week in chapter 5, we saw that when the Babylonian Empire fell, it was 539 B.C., and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Uh, History tells us that Cyrus 
was the emperor at this time. And so there has been some debate over the identification of Darius. The, the name Darius actually means holder of the scepter. And so some scholars believe that this is the title for Cyrus. Other people believe that Darius was the conquering general of Babylon who was serving under Cyrus. But either way, this man Darius begins to organize the kingdom. And he appoints 120 satraps to rule over this vast empire. And then over them, he appoints three administrators, probably having responsibility for 40 satraps each. And one of them was Daniel. And what we see again in chapter six is what we've been seeing in the first five chapters. Every time Daniel finds himself in a place of service and in a place of leadership, he begins to rise and he begins to emerge as a man of of excellence, a man of exceptional qualities, it says here. He stands above everyone else. This phrase, exceptional qualities, refers to the wisdom that Daniel has because he served God. It also speaks of his attitude. It speaks of his abilities. Daniel evidently had phenomenal leadership skills. He had incredible business acumen. And remember now, he is in his 80s. He's not a young man. He is in his 80s. He was such an impressive man, it says, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And he's going to merge on top of these three administrators. He's the number one guy. That leads to what happens next. Verses four and five, at this, The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now stop there. Imagine someone looking at your life. Imagine the government looking at your life, trying to find something to accuse you with, and they couldn't find a single thing. Is there anybody here who thinks that if the the leaders of the government scoured our lives, they would never find a single thing against us? Anybody think that that would be something that you would welcome in your life? I don't think very many of us would feel that way. But that's what happens with Daniel. There's no dirt they, they monitor his bank accounts. They inventory his social media posts. They, they go through his internet history. They, they check the document shredder. I mean, it it might have been like a, a cuneiform crusher back then. I don't, I don't know. But there's nothing. There were no emails to leak. There were no videos to expose. There was nothing, no cover-ups, no scandals, nothing that Daniel did wrong. I mean, just imagine that kind of integrity. They ended up concluding the only way we're going to get him at anything and hurt him is through his absolute commitment to God. Could anyone say that about us? That the only place where we might be vulnerable is in regard to our faith. Verses 6 through 9. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group. And you're going to see this phrase recurring. It's like all 122 of these guys are kind of scurrying around all together in a pack. They went to the king and said, and now remember, these two administrators, they they were Daniel's peers, his two partners, and they're obviously jealous. So the group comes, they say, oh, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. 
Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. A couple things here. First of all, they lied to the king. They said, we're all together on this. They're not all together on this. We've been talking. There's 123 people. How many are here? 122. Where's Daniel? Maybe Darius didn't notice that the guy who is number one in all of this group's not there. Maybe Darius didn't notice because they appeal to the king's vanity. Did you notice the sucking up that's going on in these verses? Have you ever realized the power of flattery, maybe in your life? You know, someone comes along and starts telling you, you're just really a wonderful person. You are amazing. You have all these skills and all, all these exceptional qualities, and you find yourselves thinking, I know. <laughs> it's about time someone had figured that out. Someone needs to tell my wife. And usually if someone does that to you, have you ever discovered that there's always something behind that? And there's, always, there's always a catch, right? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. They appeal to the king's vanity. And, and he ends up kind of saying, I think, you know, I am kind of like a god. And it's about time people started recognizing that. He, he takes their bait. And he is so blinded by his vanity that he does not see as he talks to these men that the most trusted advisor that he has, Daniel, is not there. He doesn't think about Daniel. Verses 10 and 11. Now, when Daniel learned that the decision had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group, see that phrase again, and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Now, why don't you in your Bible underline two phrases, when Daniel learned and he went home. Those two go together. As soon as Daniel learned of the decree, what did he do? He goes home. He walks upstairs, he opens his windows, and he starts praying, just like he always did, three times a day. Daniel does not hesitate. He's not intimidated. He doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about this. And it's, and it's obvious that that's what he's going to do because these other men, they knew he would do that. They, they, they were confident he would. And so they quickly catch him doing what he'd always done. And you kind of get the picture. They skip off to the palace all excited. We got Daniel praying. We got Daniel praying. You know, just like kids, you know. Look at verse 12. They still sound like kids. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And now they're going to they're gonna pull the trap door open. Then they say it, said to the king, verse 13, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah. And by the way, this is, this is kind of an ethnic slur. You need to understand that. They don't talk about he's the number one guy under the king. He's an exile from Judah. It's an ethnic slur. Daniel pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed 
He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And what we see here is King Darius got played. He started as a king. He thought for a while he was a god. And now we find out, everybody finds out he's a fool. But in his heart, he loves Daniel and he wants to save him. The commentators agree that he probably called in all of his lawyers. I mean, there's always lawyers everywhere, right? And he asked them, is there any way out of this? Is there any way to give Daniel a different punishment? But they all study the, the laws and they all conclude there's nothing that can be done. And so quickly, back comes the jealous mob. We, we see this again, verses 15 and 16. Then the men went as a group. So here they come again. And they went to the king and said to him, remember, O king, that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now, I don't know for sure what's happening or what's been happening, but I kind of think Daniel has been witnessing to the king. The king seems to have an understanding at some level about this God that Daniel believed in. And so he's really saying, I think, to to Daniel, you know that God you've been telling me about, how great and how faithful and how good he is, That, that God who saved your three friends from the fiery furnace. Everybody knows that story. That God who who's given you incredible wisdom, who's given you the ability to interpret dreams. I've heard all about this God, and surely, Daniel, surely this God will keep me from feeling so guilty about the fact I have to kill you. It's kind of what he's saying. He doesn't think there's any way out of it. Verses 17 and 18, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. They, they roll a big rock over the opening of the pit. They put wax over between the, 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 the pit and the, the rock, and they put their seals on it. The king and all the nobles stamped their signet rings into it so that if anyone moves a stone, they would know. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, as your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions. And it must have seemed like an eternity to him, just waiting that brief seconds to hear a call come back. And it was such a relief when Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. Now it's interesting to know these are the only two verses in this chapter where Daniel speaks. And he says, God subdued the lions. He says he's innocent in God's sight. He says he's also innocent before the king. And this is interesting. Daniel is saying, in effect, O king, I'm willing to come out of this lion's den, but if you think I've learned my lesson, if you think I spent the night wishing that I had bowed down and prayed to you, O king, if you think I'm in here going, oops, I really blew it this time, then, O king, you're wrong. Because I would rather stay in the lion's den and trust God than be out there with you and disobey God. So if you want to get me out, that's fine, but let's just make sure we're clear on everything. I did nothing wrong. Now think about that. Did he break the king's law? Well, yeah. But is it a crime 
to disobey human government, to obey God. Not if God is in it like this. Not if it's God's laws. Not if you're standing for Christ and you're standing against unrighteous laws. If you're standing on God's word, God always honored that. And apparently the king got the message. It says the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Verse 24 uh, says, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This is a brutal time. It's a brutal society. A history records the Medo-Persian Empire had a law, and I'll read you a quote from it. It said, on account of the guilt of one, all the kindred shall perish. That was their law. They had, they had law that said, if you falsely accuse someone of something and they're proven innocent, then you get to suffer the punishment you were trying uh, to have them, them suffer. I mean, it was a, it was a, a hard place to live. And you see, you see this. If you want to know the kind of lions that... God is protecting Daniel from. They don't even reach the floor of the den before the lions crush their bones. Last paragraph, Daniel 6, 25 to 28 says, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And don't miss the fact that once again in this book, once again, we see a pagan king declaring the greatness and goodness and glory of the one true God. That's happening here. And then the story concludes, the last verse. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. That's what we see. Daniel faithfully served God and God prospered him as a result. Even in exile, he was far from home for 70 years, but he was always close to God. We see that God can take care of his people no matter what, no matter the circumstances. And so what does this mean for our lives today? How do we live in the lion's den without getting eaten? What does this account tell us about how we can stand strong for God, how we can remain faithful and live wise lives even in a secular culture? Let me give you five principles. Number one, establish consistency. Establish consistency in following God. See, if you read this story and you think that Daniel like rolled out of the bed one morning and passed this test, you're wrong. The victory that you see in Daniel's life publicly is there because Daniel was very successful in his life for a long time privately. See, there will never be success in the crisis unless there is success in the process. You may look at your life and look back over weeks and months where you have failed and failed and you're giving into sin again and again, giving into anger, giving into lust, giving into gossip, giving into lying, whatever it is. If you wonder, why do I keep failing? Here's the answer. It's not the crisis. It's the process. See, if you're going to live strong for God in a difficult culture, you have to do what Daniel did. You have to establish a process of consistently walking with God. And if you're not walking with God today, 
and you know whether you are or not, and I just need to tell you it is only a matter of time until you fail and you fall. You just set the clock. It's going to happen. Daniel was a holy man who walked faithfully with God. We will never stand consistently apart from walking consistently with God over a long period of time. Let me give you two things briefly that will help us with consistency. First of all, you need a private pattern in your life. You need to commit yourself to spending time with God every day. And as long as you're kind of living like this with your time with God, you know, when I get around to it, when I have more time, when I'm not so busy, when I'm not so tired, you're never going to spend much time with God. I mean, think about how many of us have said this in our lives and we've done it more than once. Well, not before breakfast today. I've got a lot to do, but before lunch. And then it and then it ends up, well, not before lunch, but for sure before supper. And then the next thing we know, it's like, well, not, I'm pretty tired right now. I've commuted a long way tomorrow. And then we just do that the next day, and we do that a day after that. So we need to have a regular time where we meet with God. Let me just ask this question. How, what was the last time, when was the last time you, you went to work without brushing your teeth? Now, I really don't want to know the answer to that question. <laughs> and you probably say, well, I would never do that. Well, here's the real question. When was the last time you went to work totally unprepared spiritually? And some of you are like, uh, too often. See, we need to establish a pattern of consistency in our lives, a, a time of prayer, a time in God's word. And, and if you want to hear how you do that, here it is. Get a plan. You need to make a plan. It never happens by accident. If you don't have a plan, we have some plans in the lobby. If you don't have time to, to find a plan in the lobby before you leave today, go on the internet. There's lots of plans on the internet. There are a few good things on the internet. Most of you probably have hundreds and thousands of plans on your phone right now if you have the YouVersion Bible app. There are plans to read God's word everywhere. Get a plan. See, part of what we need to do with this is just think of it as, as our spiritual food, our spiritual diet. I mean, this is the 11 o'clock service, so I'm just going to check, but you eat every day, right? Yes. And the answer from my vantage point as I look out here is, well, obviously. Uh, <laughs> well, nourish your soul with spiritual food every day. If you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. And, and the interesting thing is we, most of us get this in every other area of our life. Don't you have plans for everything? I mean, some of you have too many plans. You're a little freaky in this area, and you need to kind of relax a little bit. But uh, you have plans for your finances. You have plans for vacation. You have exercise and workout plans. You have plans to remodel your home. You have retirement plans. You have plans for your kids. You know exactly what they're going to do, and you're going to have to learn a lesson about that one of these days. But you have plans. You have plans for your groceries. You make a list before you go to the store to buy your food. I mean, we have plans for everything. But do we have a spiritual growth plan? Or are you just on the I hope it'll happen plan? That's a bad plan. You might say, well, you know, Mike, uh, you've told us this before. I have. And I'm going to tell you again because you're still not doing it, a lot of us. And I'm going to be telling you again in the future. So just get ready. I'm going to tell you because I love you. I'm going to tell you because it's good for you. And in case you're not clear, let me say it. This is not a rule to keep. 
This is about a relationship with your heavenly Father who loves you so much, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Why would you not want to spend time every day with a father like that? Establish consistency in your private life. Then second, you you need a a public profession. And what I'm talking about here is we, we need to be people who let other people know who our Lord is where our allegiance is. I mean, how many of us are Christ followers and there's like no one around us who knows it because we've never told them and they have no idea. Do you see in this story, everyone knew who Daniel followed. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Do you think Jesus meant what he said? Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Do you ever ask yourself why you haven't told him? I mean, what do you think it means if, if you are, are at work and no one at work knows you're a Christ follower? What do you think it means if in your neighborhood nobody understands why you're pulling out of the driveway on Sunday mornings? They don't know what you're doing, where you're going. They have no idea. You never told them. What, what is that? I mean, why are you staying quiet? Are you embarrassed? Are you afraid? Are you ashamed? See, we live in Babylon in a secular culture. And what that means in the 21st century is that most people we work with and live with, they don't believe what we believe as followers of Christ. It means that more and more, most people think that the things we believe, if we live according to God's word, those things are strange. Those things are backward. Those things are intolerant. And we need to be people who say in our hearts with love, well, it doesn't really matter because God is our king. And that matters more to me than what other people think. And so we honor him by openly declaring our allegiance. We, we trust him with whatever happens next. Are you people who are just letting other people around you in your life know that Jesus is your Lord? This should be part of your life. It should not be an odd thing. It should be part of your life, just like it was with Daniel. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Uh, expect opposition. We need to expect opposition. You know, part of what we are to take from this story of Daniel and his incredible life is this. Even someone as good and faithful and righteous as Daniel has enemies, experiences oppositions. Who do we think we are? (laughs) And this is not a solitary lesson that we find in one spot in the Bible. It's all across the pages of the Bible. Jesus said this, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. You don't think you're more special than Jesus, do you? <laughs> the Apostle Peter says uh, to, uh, to people who are experiencing persecution, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. And, and then the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Say, will be. Will be. It's going to happen. See, there's opposition that comes with following Christ, and there always has been, so we should expect it. We should prepare for it. It's going to come sometimes from family, sometimes from neighbors, sometimes from coworkers, and even sometimes from government. Are we expecting opposition? Here's the third thing. Maintain faithfulness. Now, this just means when that opposition actually comes, you stay faithful. 
those patterns that I've been talking about. I, I will keep on praying. I will stay in God's word. I will keep on walking with God. You know, I, I think maybe the best verse in Daniel 6 is verse 10. Look at it again. It says, now, when Daniel had learned that the decree had been published. Now, just stop right there for a moment. And I want you to use your imagination. I want you to kind of stop and place yourself in Daniel's sandals. What would you do? Just be Daniel for a moment. You hear about this injunction. For 30 days now, you can't pray to any God except Darius. What would you do? Now, don't judge me, okay? But I'd start thinking, hmm, I wonder if I have some other options here. You know, I could continue praying in my heart, couldn't I? Because the Bible says to pray without ceasing, and we know that, you know, I have to do our jobs and live our lives. So that means sometimes we've got to be praying silently. I could do that, right? Or, you know, I really like the prayer walk, and so I'm going to just do some prayer walks where I walk around and, you know, look at things, and quietly, silently, I'll be praying. Or maybe I'm going to do one of my prayer naps. That's one of my favorite things to do. Anybody do prayer naps? I'm just going to pray as I nap. And, um, you know, why, why would Daniel egg them on here? Why would he pray in public? And, and really, this is what is so shocking. Go back to the verse. It, 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 when he learned that the decree had been published, remember I told you to underline, he went home. Instantly, he, he goes home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel is a beast. I mean, this is like beast mode here. This is the most gangster move ever. Daniel's an old man in his mid-80s. And this guy says, not only am I going to pray, I'm going to pray three times a day. And not only am I going to pray three times a day, I'm going to pray in the direction of Jerusalem, not in the direction of Darius. And not only that, I'm going to pray with open windows. And not only am I going to open my windows and pray, but I'm going to pray out loud so that anyone can hear what I am doing, what I am praying. And you're like, why, Daniel, Why? Well, it tells us in the verse, because that's what he's always done. Daniel's devotion to God has never been pretentious or showy, but it has never been secret, even in Babylon. See, everyone knows who he is, and he is not going to privatize his faith. Let me just stop right here now. Do you realize that there is such a powerful move in our culture to push Christians to privatize our faith. Uh, There's such a strong move to say, you can do what you want to do with your faith. You can believe what you want to do, but just keep it in your homes. Just keep it inside your churches. Don't bring it out into public. What do you think Daniel would have done in response to that kind of thinking? Daniel doesn't compartmentalize his faith. And you, you know, you're kind of like, well, Daniel, maybe you could just be a little more discreet. It's only for 30 days. And he says, no, I'm not going to compromise, not even in the smallest way. I'm going to do what I've always done. One of the early church fathers' name was Polycarp. And he was burned at the stake in Smyrna in AD 155. And The account tells us that he had been a Christian for 86 years. So we don't know how old he was, but he was really old. And a lot of people really loved him in that region. And they said, you know, you've had a great run. Just just deny the Lord. Just say the words. We don't even care if you mean it. Nobody really cares if you mean it. Just say the words and we will spare your life. And Polycarp said, 
86 years how I served him. And he has never done me any harm. Why should I forsake him now? See, the reason that Daniel prays the way he does is it's just who he is. It's like he's, for 70 plus years now, developed this unflinching discipline of saying no to evil and saying no to sin. And after a while, it just becomes second nature. It's like he's building a spiritual muscle memory. And as soon as he sees evil and sin, he says no. And that's how it happens in life. Do you know this? The more we say no to evil and sin, the more natural that becomes. But the less we say no to evil and sin, the more natural it becomes for us to do evil and to commit sin. That's how it works in our lives. I think maybe one way of thinking of the real lesson here is that the real lion's den of Daniel's life had happened for years and years before this in his upstairs room where he prayed every day, three times a day. That's where he settled the issue. See, Daniel would rather lose his life than lose his testimony. Do you understand that Satan prefers that we lose our testimonies and save our lives? Maintain faithfulness, maintain faithfulness. And then number four, suffer in silence. You know, if you read this chapter carefully, you cannot help but notice the the, the silence and the quietness of Daniel. The first time he ever, ever speaks is verse 21, and then he's done by verse 22. He never speaks again. You don't hear him arguing with the king. And remember, he's the number two guy. You don't see him running to the palace complaining. What kind of law is this? I mean, he had the favor of the king, but we don't hear any of that, just silence. And even when he's brought before the lion's den, it's not recorded he said a single word. Does that remind you of anyone else? Hundreds of years later, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was silent before his accusers. When they reviled him, he reviled not. They beat him and mocked him and spat on him and cursed him, and he didn't say a thing. He was silent. Sometimes I wonder, maybe there'd be just, there's just too much talking going on. I mean, I feel my feel like that about myself sometimes. You just think about all the messages we've, we've received from Daniel the past few weeks and how many of us have even begun to adequately process and apply the things that we have been learning. And yet here I am talking again. And some of you are going, yeah, here you are talking again. But here you are listening again. And some of you, here you are listening and not doing anything again. You know, I wonder sometimes if maybe we should just come and sit and be silent and think about how we can live out what God's already taught us. You know, many times we see this. God allows his people to suffer, and he does it for this purpose so that others can see. Here he does it so that Darius can see. It's like he wants Darius to see, Daniel, Daniel, you love God more than you love your life? Unbelievable. And Darius cannot sleep. He's all torn up. And think about this. He's the king. He has absolutely everything in life except peace. Daniel, on the other hand, has nothing. And he's in the lion's den. Now, we don't get to see Daniel at night. It's not, we're not told. But I want to tell you what I read in the MIV. That's the Mike-inspired version, okay? Um, I guarantee you that he was 
sleeping and he slept all night. I think, I think that he was snuggled up between two lions. I think he was petting their manes. I think he was hugging the lions. I mean, when else in your life are you going to get to hug a lion, right? <laughs> you know, he probably even said, you know, in, in Aramaic or something, I, I don't know how you say, here, kitty, nice kitty, you know, something like that. But he's in the lion's den and he's at peace because he's trusting in God and God's control. Are you willing to suffer in silence no matter what God does? Let me give you the last thing. Wait for deliverance. Now, Daniel waited all night. Sometimes we have to wait much, much longer. Some of you have been waiting on God for a long time for something, maybe. Maybe waiting on God for a lifetime partner. And maybe some of you were tempted this week to compromise that. Maybe some of you are young couples and you're waiting to start, start a family. You're having struggles, waiting on God month after month. And maybe some of you are here waiting on a loved one, maybe a child, and they're very far from God and you're waiting for them to return, trying to be faithful to God. Some of you have a financial thing, maybe hanging over your head and, and you wonder if the clouds will ever clear on this, but you're waiting on God. You know, it can be hard for us to make sense out of all these circumstances we go through, but we must wait. We must wait on God because we trust God as long as it takes. And that's the question this chapter brings us as people living in Babylon. Will you wait on God, whatever he's up to? Will you trust him? Wise living in a secular culture often means we have to wait on God and we have to trust. I need to point out that this can get misunderstood This whole story of Daniel, I think, can get misunderstood because God is rescuing him again and again and again. There used to be a bumper sticker that people would, Christians would put on their car. Some of you may remember it. It said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, God does love you and God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but that may not mean what you think it means. God has a wonderful plan for your life, and sometimes that plan includes getting eaten by lions. God doesn't rescue all of his children, everyone. And if you misunderstand this story and you think it's how God will always come to the rescue, will always save us in the way we would like him to do it, then you can misunderstand in the end. You can even misunderstand Christianity. Daniel is not about us just becoming like Daniel, working real hard and living like Daniel so that God can bless us like Daniel. And in fact, you push that far enough and that's not Christianity at all. It's just works righteousness. It's like, you know, if you're good, then good things will happen. What happens to people who believe that is they try to be good, they try to be good, and then bad things happen, and they bail. God let them down. On the other side of the coin, some people will look at that and say, well, I'm not a good person. I'm a pretty bad person. I could never be like that, so therefore I must conclude that Christianity is not for me. I don't have any hope. For those people, Jesus says, I did not come for people who think they're good. I didn't come for people who think they are healthy. I came for sinners And by the way, in case you weren't sure about this, that includes every one of us. Jesus says, I came for people who understand they have no hope apart from me. See, we need to keep this story of Daniel and Daniel 6 in the same frame as we put some other stories in the Bible, like 
the prophet Isaiah. What an amazing man. What a faithful, godly man. You know how his life ended? He was sawn in half. We need to keep it in perspective with people like the apostle Peter. What a great man of God. He was crucified upside down. What about the apostle Paul, who many people see as the the greatest Christ follower who ever lived? He was beheaded. See, a lot of times God doesn't save us from our suffering. A lot of times God allows his people to go through suffering so that his people can show the world there's something better and greater than life. And that something is someone and his name is Jesus. So here's the thing. Are you willing to submit to him and wait even if it lands you in the lion's den, even if you don't get out of the lion's den? Now, you may hear a question like that and say, I don't know, I'm not really sure, but let me tell you how you can do it. Here's how. You can do that if you know the true lion, the lion of lions, the lion of Judah. You can do that if you know and you live with and you walk with the lion who has defeated Satan, that that roaring lion roaming about to find who he can devour. You can do that if you live for and walk with the lion who has defeated the lion of death, the, the lion who has defeated all the smaller lions that bring pain and suffering in that, into our lives, you can do that if you know him, and you can know him today. You can know him today. I want to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to pray. And some of us may not really be ready to stand for God because We've never given our lives to God. And I need to say to you, as your heads are bowed, if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't received the free gift of eternal life, then it is available to you. It's available to you now. And all you need to do is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for your your sins' forgiveness. You can just pray in your heart right now, and God knows your heart. You can just say something like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I, I want to turn from my sin today. I believe that Jesus died, paid the penalty for my sin. And so right now, as best I know how, I accept him by faith. I believe in him. I believe in Jesus. I accept his forgiveness and I commit myself to follow him the rest of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life Help me to live for you now. I pray this in your name. And then if you are a follower, and maybe you're in the lion's den right now, or maybe one day you will be, and God is speaking to you today. He is by his Holy Spirit applying his word. I'm confident of that. That's what he does. And so will you listen to him and hear the truth that he's speaking to your life, the areas in your life you need to turn from sin and the areas in your life you need to turn to him and trust him, whatever they may be, will you just express those to him right now? Just cry out to him. He is here. He is listening. He loves you. And he wants to help. He is a good God. Father, we give you thanks just as Daniel did, Lord. Thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your salvation. Thanks for your mercy. Thanks for all of your blessings. 
And we ask you, Lord, wherever we are in our lives, that you would strengthen us to follow you faithfully, to live wisely in a very dark world, to live as exiles, far, far, far away from home, but always close to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people say, Amen.